we're excited every week that we get to dismiss our kids because we're not just dimiss, dismissing them into playtime or childcare, but we want them at an early age to begin to, to, to recognize what the voice of the Lord sounds like. That story in the Old Testament of, of Samuel, right, hearing the voice of the Lord as just as a child. We believe, you don't, you don't, there's so many things you got to wait to do, right? 16, driver's license. 18, adult voting, you know, all the different markers, but there's no marker for having a life-defining, passion-filled relationship with the creator of the universe. You can have that, come on, as a young child, and so we're excited. You know, I spent the first 23 years of my life in just in a spiritual slumber, and that's why we wanted to open the service this way, you know, joking around a little bit about how my mom used to wake us up, this idea of rise and shine. We, we want people to get, get uh, awakened out of their spiritual slumber. We want people to be able to wake up every day with a sense of confidence. I'm going to hear from God today. My Heavenly Father, my Creator, He's going to speak to me. He's going to direct me. He's going to guide me. I was telling Vanessa just the other day, I, was, I think it was on Friday, I was, I was coming home from the office. I had some errands to run. We're, we're going to be heading out of town. And, and I had this list. You know, anybody here a list person? I'm a list person. Right? I had a list of things I wanted to do. And I, and I knew where I wanted to start. Right, And so, so I'm, I'm going there. And God speaks to my heart and says, don't go there right now. I want you to go there later. Like, what difference does it make to you about, the, well, you know, I mean, that's the, right, the part, you know. I'm thinking to myself, God, I know that you care about lots of things, but why do you care about the order of my list that I have to, but he cares about every detail of our life, right? So I'm, right, this, we have one rule that we talk here about the City Life Church. Yes, Lord, right, he's the boss. So I said, I'm not going there. So leave a little bit later. Heading there again. God says, I don't want you to go there yet. All right, Lord, you got a reason. So finally, right, when it comes time to coming around it for the third time to go there, I feel like, God, all right, this time. As soon as I get out of my car, there's a young woman there. She's frantic, and she says, I will, I, what, what do I need to pay you to give me a jump? I'm stuck here. My car won't start. I don't know what to do. She's, you know, she's just, she's in a nervous state. And, and, and so I said, ma'am, you don't have to pay me anything, you know? I'll come around. I've got jumper cables. She didn't have anything like that. And so we opened up. We, we, it didn't work, but it, you, it turned over a little bit. So there's an auto parts store across the street. I said, ma'am, if you walk over there, I gave her all the information of the car that she needed. If you walk in there, all you need is a battery. And, t- and tell the attendant, they'll come over here and put that new battery in your car. You would have thought that she had won the lottery. Are you with me? And so the whole time that this is happening, you know what I'm thinking, right? This is why God didn't want me to go to the store. He's willing to rearrange our schedule just to help people. Helping people matters to God. It matters to God. So, so I'm, why am I sharing that with you? It's because we want you to live your life with a sense of expectation that God wants to speak to you. And oftentimes it's just about reordering your day so that your life can be a blessing to someone else who's in need. He cares about people that much. That, he's not just, he doesn't just care about humanity. He cares about every individual every life. And so, and, and part of, you know, being at the City Life Church is that we want you to discover a sense of hearing from God because sometimes we challenge you, we want you to hear from God about and fill in the blank. And so that's what faith promises. If you didn't get one of these cards, the ushers have them. You can kind of slip your hand up. Not if you're a visitor. If this is your home church and you haven't gotten this card yet, we want you to get one of these in your hand. We talked about this, launched it two weeks ago, but we're initiating Faith Promise. We're going to be doing this every year. It's called Faith Promises because you, you pray and God's going to give you a number. And then you're going to believe by faith. You might not have any idea where that money's going to come from, but you believe by faith that he's going to give it to you. And then when it comes in, it might come in in increments. It might come in all in one lump sum. You make a promise that you're going to give that money 
to the Faith Promise Initiative. You can even designate how you want that Faith Promise money to be used. It could go towards uh, our missions, which is going to be towards some missions projects around the world and supporting our missionaries, uh, our building fund for where we're going to move, move to next because we, we're just uh, renting a space here, and then also for the Williamsburg campus that we launched back in September. You can designate your Faith Promise. You might designate a little bit to each. And somebody asked me a question earlier, you know, well, what if I want to give to something else? Every other ministry in the church is funded through people's tithes. It's funded through the money that you already give. And so Faith Promise is to generate money to fund things that we don't have money for presently. Does that make sense? And so I have this friend, his, his adage is, can you turn this mic down for me, Tyler? I feel like I'm really hot. I am. I am good looking. No. <laughs> that, that we, now see, I have totally lost my train of thought. We want you to believe God, that he's going to speak a number to your heart, that you would say, God, how is that even possible? When, when, when we begin to believe God for the impossible, which is where we're going to be, we've been in this series, where we're going to go again tonight, I'm telling you, we position ourselves for some stories that God just can't wait for us to tell. I know what I was saying. My friend has this saying, he's not going to give it to you until he can get it through you. He's just waiting for you to make the promise. And I'm telling you, already we, a faith promise story is brewing for our family. We, we, if, we can't wait to tell it. It's so, yeah, we're excited. We're excited. But if you just would be willing to believe, God can do amazing things. All right, come on. Faith promise. You want to be a part of that. So I want to do a couple of giveaways and we want to get into tonight's message. So who here, who here is getting ready to go on vacation? Anybody? First hand I see. Oh, I saw the Thomas in hand first. You got to be quick on the draw here. It's like the old west. You got to be quick on the draw. So we have coffee from out front. So you need, and then we have Laura Nowotny's book. So you get to, so you have a book to read and some coffee to drink while you're reading it. You're not clapping, you're bitter. Come on, clap. You're thinking, I'm one of that. Well, if you want some, that's, you can buy it right out there at the table. You can buy it at the table. I want to, uh, we're going to approach tonight a little bit, a little bit differently. We're going to, um, I want to preach into the culture of the church tonight. Can I do that? I want to preach into the culture of the church tonight. And you might say, what, what does that mean? What does that feel like? Well, it feels like a lot of what happened last week, if you were here. Regardless of what you believe about the content of what Dean Nowotny shared, and if you have questions about what he shared about, about alternative lifestyles, if you have questions about what we believe here at the City Life Church, about the, the sacredness of parenting, and how he just talked about this idea that mistakes that we make as parents, it, it, it will bring consequence into the lives of our children. If you have questions about that, we hope that you'll raise your hand. Come on, that you're going to give us a call, that you're going to shoot us an email. We want to have a conversation with you about that. But if you were here this past weekend, you know that something was imparted to this church and its courage. There was, a, there was an impartation of courage into this church last weekend. It, it was undeniable. It was in the lives of fathers. It was into families. But it was collectively into our church. We, we all felt it. There's times where God wants to, he wants to impart something. And I believe he wants to impart something into us tonight. He wants to impart something into us tonight. This, this series that we're, that we're in about what does it mean to be a Pentecostal church in a, in a modern day world, one of, the, one of the hallmarks of Pentecostalism is that we believe that the narrative portions of Scripture are instructive. The narrative portions. It means that we can dig into a story and that story wants to speak to us. That story wants to teach us. And oftentimes that story wants to have a prophetic voice into your life. That it wants to impart something into you. It's, it's, it's not just about information. Are you with me? It's about something being of heaven being deposited deep 
into your heart. And we believe that here at the City Life Church. And there's times, like we're going to do tonight, where we take a story and we just begin to get into that story. And that story begins to get into us. And then something of heaven gets left in us that just, it changes us. We're not the same on the other side. Come on, you want some of that tonight? I want some of that tonight. The Bible is a living book. It is a living book, and that we begin to open it, and we begin to read it with a sense of expectation. I'm telling you that things can be imparted into our lives that are absolutely transformational. You know what? And before, we, before I read that, I want to, let me share the story, just to get us thinking along the right direction. You like a little history? I like a little history. All right, the first two decades of the 5th century B.C. marked one of the great turning points in world history. These were the years of the Persian and Greek wars, and the powerful Persian Empire in 546 B.C. extended from Asia to Egypt to what is now Turkey. Greece, on the other hand, consisted of a scattering of independent city-states, and these early city-states spawned the democratic ideas that have persisted even today into modern times. Athens eventually became the largest and most prosperous city-state, and another Greek city-state, Sparta, was not so democratic. They kept their kings, they maintained a conservative regimented society built around military training and the art of war. Now the Persian Empire over the years expanded to the Mediterranean Sea, and by the year 490 BC, the Persian army was ready to expand their territory and move into Europe. They landed a large force just outside of Athens on the plains of Marathon and prepared for an attack. The Athens vastly outnumbered, desperately needed the help of Sparta's military base to help them fend off the attack. Time was short, and so the Athenian generals send Pheidippides, a professional runner to Sparta, to ask for help. The 140-mile course. I was, we were watching the Olympic trials. Anybody else watching those, right? They were doing the 10,000 meter. That just seems far, right? That's only like five or six miles. 140 miles. It's a true story over mountainous and rugged terrain. Pheidippides ran the course in about 36 hours. Sparta agreed to help, but said they would not take the field until the moon was full due to religious laws. This would leave the Athenians alone to fight the Persian army. Pheidippides ran back to Athens. True story. Ran back to Athens another 140 miles. And he brought disappointing news. Immediately the small Athenian army including Pheidippides, right? If that had been you or I, we would have said, hey, you know, I've just run 280 miles. You know, I need, I get a pass. Including Pheidippides, marched onto the plains of Marathon to prepare for battle. The Athenian army was outnumbered four to one, but they launched a surprise offensive thrust, the thrust of which at the time appeared suicidal. But by day's end, 6,400 Persian bodies lay dead on the field while only 192 Athenians had been killed. Their surviving Persians fled to sea and headed south to Athens where they hoped to attack the city before the Greek army could reassemble there. Pheidippides was again called upon to run to Athens. This time, 26 miles, which modern day marathon, right? 26.2. He runs 26 miles to carry the news of the victory and the warning about the approaching Persian ships. Despite the fatigue and after his recent run to Sparta and back, having fought all morning in heavy armor, Pheidippides rose to the challenge, pushing himself past normal limits of human endurance. He reached Athens in about three hours. He delivered his message and then shortly died thereafter of exhaustion. Anybody heard that story before? True story, history. 
the story of the modern-day marathon. It is a powerful story for us in this sermon series that we're in because we're defining that what it means to be Pentecostal in a modern-day world is that we believe, we have an unshakable belief that God still makes the impossible possible. That God calls us to live a life in such a way that would cause other people from the outside looking in, how is that possible? And when we begin to look into the story of Acts, into the, into the, the story of the birthing of the first church, the story of the birthing of the first Pentecostal church, you cannot read that story and not find in these people a selflessness that was imparted to them from heaven that caused them to begin to serve one another and serve the mission of Christ and to serve the advancement of the gospel in the world to a degree and at a level that caused everybody else around them to say that's impossible. How, how is that even possible? So every week we've been doing, right, we did impossible generosity. We did impossible power. Tonight we're going to be talking about impossible service. Even still today, I'm telling you that God wants to impart, and I believe he's going to impart something to some of you tonight, that he wants us to move into a place of selflessness. He wants us to live at a place of selflessness where our lives, where he hears us say to him, God, however you want to use my life, to build your kingdom, to advance the message of the gospel in this world, oh God, that you would use me. And the world would see our devotion. The world would see our service in whatever church that we call home. The world would see our service, whatever missions endeavor that he's called us to, that it would rise to such a level that it would inspire other people. I don't know what that's about, but I want to learn more about it because something, it gives you life. Come on, you with me? So I'm making up a word tonight. You ready? We like to make up words by dipadish. You like that? You like that? God wants us to live a life at a level that's fidipadish. All right, let me give you this, this verse. This is out of Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6. Because part of, part of being a devoted follower of Christ means that we allow his value system to displace and replace our value system. Does that make sense? And so a lot of the things that we think of being as despicable, God says, yeah, that's despicable. Like what's happened with the, the Sandusky trial right now, right? We all look at that and say that's absolutely despicable. And God, he says the same thing. It's the, it breaks his heart. But then there's some things as we begin to dig around in Scripture, I think if we're honest, we would say, God, I'm, I'm not sure that I would cause that. I think it's bad. I think it's wrong. But is it really despicable? And, and then in texts like this in Proverbs chapter 6, we begin to see that God, he's operating off of a different value system. This is 6, beginning in 16, going through 19. It says, six things the Lord hates. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Seven things are detestable. So that's poetic language that Solomon uses to say, hey, the first six things I'm going to give to you, these things are really bad. But the seventh thing is it's worse than all the other six combined, right? So you begin to read this and we begin to think, wow, this, this is going to be really bad. So six things the Lord hates. In fact, seven are detestable to him. All right, so here he starts to list. Arrogant eyes. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet that are eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, right? So we're in this list and we're going, wow, those are pretty despicable things. What's the seventh one going to be? It's got to be horrific. The one who stirs up trouble amongst the brethren. Or he who sows discord amongst the brethren, it says, right? If you're, I think if you're honest with yourself, with me too, right? I say, really? That's, that's worse than hands that shed innocent blood? Somebody that, that maybe stirs up trouble a little bit? 
We, we, we get into texts like this and we begin to realize God has a value system that we need to better understand and that there needs to be something inside of us that says, God, I want to despise the things that you despise. I want the things that you call despicable to cause something of a reaction in my own heart that I would say, that's despicable too. Now, we're not talking about that specifically tonight, but we're going to talk about something different that, that, that is despicable to God, which I think oftentimes it's hard for us to get our brain and our heart around it. But this is part of this idea of being devoted followers of Christ, is that we want His value system to displace and replace ours. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Numbers. This is the story that we're going to be digging around in tonight. Number 16. Number 16. It says, now Korah... Son of Izar, son of Koath, son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram and Eliab and On, son of Peleth, son of Reuben, took 250 prominent Israelite men who were leaders of the community and representatives in the assembly, and they rebelled against Moses. Now, before you get nervous, I'm not talking about authority tonight, right? Because some of you have endured many sermons from this text. If you've been around church for any amount of time where someone's trying to assert authority, that's not what we're talking about tonight. In fact, hopefully by the time we get through the story that you're going to see that the, the part that's the most reprehensible to God has very little to do with the act of rebellion that took place. It's something very different that caused God to say, that's absolutely detestable to me. All right, come on. 250 prominent Israelite men who were leaders of the community and representatives in the assembly, and they rebelled against Moses. Verse 3, it says, They came together against Moses and Aaron and told them, You have gone too far. Everyone in the entire community is holy, and the Lord is among them. And I think at this point, right, Moses is looking at Aaron, and they're going, Okay, I agree with that, right? Why then do you exalt yourself above the Lord's assembly. Verse 4 says, when Moses heard this, he fell face down, right? Because here's where Moses is saying, what on earth are you talking about? It's interesting that, that oftentimes the complaint that comes from a disgruntled person has no basis. In fact, it's just born out of their own security, insecurity. And Moses is saying, I have poured my life out unto the, unto the risk of my own personal well-being for these people. Listen to what he says. Then he said to Korah and all of his followers, tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning the Lord will reveal who belongs to the Lord and who he will call to himself, who is set apart, and the one he will let come near him, he will let the one who chooses come near. Korah, you and all your followers are to do this. Take fire pans. So this is one of the ways in, in, uh, in, in Judaism in ancient times, they had a fire pan that they would use to bring an offering to the Lord. It says, we're gonna, everybody's going to take a fire pan. You're 250 and then me and Aaron. And tomorrow we're going to place the fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord. And then the man the Lord chooses will be the one who is set apart. And it's you Levites who have gone too far. Now, it's important that we understand here that they're Levites. This is important for us. So Levi, he had three sons, and those three sons became three different groups of Levites. They were the Kohathites, they were the Gershonites, and then there were Merorites. And they all had specific responsibility as it related to caring for the spiritual needs of the people. So they were the pastors of their day. And they all had different responsibilities depending on which son they were a descendant from. But all of them, even though their responsibilities varied in some measure, all of them had the responsibility for caring for the spiritual needs of that they were set apart as a group of people to serve the community of Israel. They were to give their lives in service to others. He says, no, you Levites have gone too far. 
Moses also told Korah, now listen, Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the Israelite community to bring you near to himself, to perform the work at the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community to minister to them? He has brought you near and all your fellow Levites who are with you, but you are seeking the priesthood as well. Now, Moses is using this term priesthood to distinguish his specific calling amongst the, 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 the holy people of his day. His responsibility was to spend an enormous amount of time alone with God, and then God would speak to him, right, the will of the people. And that's where we get the Pentateuch and so much of the Old Testament. It was because God began to speak to Moses, and he began to write it down, and that became much of the Old Testament. And so what we see here, this is, this is what Korah is saying. Korah is saying, this work of serving people, why don't you come do that, Moses? This, this menial work of giving our lives day in and day out and day in and day out to care for other people, we just don't care about them at all. H how about you come do what we're doing and why don't you let us go what, what you're doing? You with me? And something in that complaint caused God to say, Cora, that is absolutely despicable to me. How despicable was it? Well, we find out as we keep reading. It says, each man took his fire pan and placed the fire in it, and he put incense on it, and he stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting along with Moses and Aaron. And after Korah assembled the whole community against them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the whole community. Now, see, if that were me, at that point, I would say, okay, Moses, you win, right? So, he, so God shows up right there, his glory appears to the whole community, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, right? Separate yourselves from this community so that I might consume them instantly. Okay, even then you would think at that point, Korah would say, all right, Moses, you win. But Moses and Aaron, they fell face down and said, God, God of spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you vent your wrath on the whole community? And the Lord replied to Moses, tell the community to get away from the dwellings of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. As you keep reading this story, many of you are familiar with it. God causes the earth beneath their feet to open up like a mouth and swallowed up all of those families of those three men. Their tents, their possessions, their wives, their children, everything. We read stories like that and we go, God, he, he, was, he, just, he was having a bad day, right? I mean, these people, the only thing that they were doing was they were, they were complaining about how arduous and, 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 and how hard it was to serve people. And right, if you've worked with people, you know that it's not easy, right? You live with someone, you know that people can be difficult to be around, right? We all relate to that. But I think all of us, we read that story and say, God, that seems a little bit excessive. It seems as though the punishment that you brought to that moment just seems to be far beyond the sin that we would say that they had committed. Oh, but it doesn't stop there. Not only did the ground open up like a mouth and swallow up all those families, fire came out of heaven and consumed every one of the 250 men that stood with them. Fire out of heaven, right? Burned them up right there. 
There should be something in our heart that says, God, what could possibly be so despicable to you that you would destroy these people in such a violent way? So when Juice and I were up at the conference, the Elam conference up in London, New York, it's a guy by the name of Bob Sorge began to teach, S-O-R-G-E, you should look him up, amazing teacher, amazing teacher. And he began to break down the story of Moses like I've never heard it broken down before. And it's one of those people he was teaching, you, you did not want him to stop, right? He was just pouring out this deep, deep knowledge. And, and, and so, so, so he talks about the story of Moses and how when God tells Moses early on in the Exodus, I want you to strike the rock for water to come out, right? You're familiar with that story. So he strikes the rock with the staff. The rock breaks open. Water flows out of the rock, and the people are able to drink, and their lives are saved. So, so later on in, in Moses' ministry, right? Later on in his life, God tells him again, because the people are, are dehydrated. They're going to die if they don't have water. And this time he says to them what? He says, speak to the rock. He doesn't say strike the rock. And so this time he, he right? He's frustrated. He has a core moment. He's irritated. And so he goes with his staff, and, and this time he strikes the rock. He strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. And, and, and it was because, because of that one thing. Because of that one thing. Because of that one thing. What did God say to Moses? You're not going into the promised land. Oh, well, that's not fair. You ever heard your kids say that to you? That's not fair. We've said that. That's not fair to our boss at work. If you're in the military, you have a job, you're, you're in your, your, your homeowners association meeting, right? That's not fair. We've all experienced, we recognize unfairness when it's happening, especially when it's happening to us. We recognize it right off the bat. And so we're reading the story of Moses, right? And we say, come on, God, that really doesn't seem to be fair. So then Bob Sorge, he begins to talk about this idea of things that are detestable to God. And he begins to talk about how God, from the beginning of time, has been writing a story, a story of himself, to reveal himself to the world that he's created, a revelation that we're all desperate to have. And in this story, he invites Moses to be a part of it, just like he's invited each of you to be a part of the story in some way. We all have a part of the story of revealing God to the world. So he invites Moses in to be a part of the story. Now, now, what's that about? He says, all right, I'm going to ask you to strike the rock, which is a prophetic foretelling of Jesus, come on, who's the rock, his life being struck through the crucifixion, his, his life being laid open through death, and life, come on, living water flows out of Christ into the world to cleanse it and forgive it from sin. It's rich, isn't it? So then he goes on to say, so when he gets to Moses later, and he says, Moses, now I want you to speak to the rock. Moses thinks it's about the water for the people, but really all along it's about God's story. Because God's trying to give the second part of this prophecy through the story of the life of Moses. Uh, Jesus is one day going to come. You don't know who he is, right? But he's going to one day come, right? Because this is Moses. This is thousands of years before. I'm going to give my son to die for the sins of the world. Living water is going to flow from his life. But I need you to speak to the rock this time, Moses, because this is to let people know he only has to die one time. He never has to be struck again. None have to be struck again. And every person who's willing to come to this rock and speak to this rock, will you forgive me? You died for me. Come on. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans. If you confess with your mouth, he, 
Moses doesn't know anything about Romans and Paul, and, right? But this is God. He's writing a story. And Moses is supposed to speak to the rock as a prophetic foretelling of you and I for all of us. I did it when I was 23. I came to that rock and I spoke to that rock. I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart so that salvation can come to me. So that all of my sins, all of my mistakes, that water can wash over me so that I can be forgiven. Isaiah, right? Chapter 1, though your sins be as scarlet, they be as white as snow, though they be as red as crimson, they would be like lamb's wool. And then that water begins to fill our lives, which is the whole message of this church. Heaven now, heaven forever. Living water cleanses us so that we can have the hope of a heaven to come, but a living water that keeps filling us up over and over and over again so we can experience the abundant life that Jesus wants us to have. God was angry at Moses because he stinking messed up the story. And that's serious business to God. Because the story is about the revelation of himself to the world. And when the story gets messed up because we're doing it in our own way, it's a part of God's value system. He says, that's serious business to me. All right, you ready? Let's go back to Korah. Bob Sorge, I'm telling you, you better look it up because that's good stuff, isn't it? So we come back to Korah. The ground opens up. Fire comes out of heaven. People are dying. Children. It's people that seem innocent. Is, is it an example of rage? No. It's an example of God's story getting messed up. See, because God said to Korah, because he was born of the tribe of Levi, right? He, which he didn't have anything to do with, right? We don't, we don't pick. And the Bible talks about how every one of us, God assigns the place in the world that we're going to be born, the family that we're going to be born into. Korah was born into a calling to be a part, a unique part of a story. And so God said to Korah, Korah, come on, I want you to be a part. I want you to be a part of the story. But if you don't want to be a part of the story, that's okay. Just get out of the way. But if you're not going to get out of the way, I will move you out of the way of my story. I will cause the earth to open up and swallow up your sorry donkey. You with me? Come on. God's story is serious business. And this part of the story, just like Moses' part of the story, it is sacred. God put those Levites on the earth to be a part of the story of the part of God that all of us need to have a revelation of. It's the selflessness of who he is. Spit up it, Beish. We think Pheidippides did something selfless. The greatest moment of selflessness that has ever stood in the history of the world is the moment that God said, I'm going to send my one and only son to die for the sins of the world. God in all of his glory, God in all of his grandeur, God in all of his power, if there is any being in this universe that has the right to say, come on, I'm going to do nothing for you, you're going to do everything for me because I created this stinking world that you're messing up all the time, right? But that's not what he says to us. He says, I cannot help but because of the nature of who I am to pour out my life for people who are undeserving. It's part of the story that God's writing in the world. 
And he was asking Korah and all the other 250 people that were part of that rebellion, I am inviting you to be a part. Now, you don't understand it, right? Because it's something that's going to happen years down the road. But he was saying to them, I want you to be a part of living your life to such a degree of selflessness, to such a degree of selflessness that every day you wake up and serve people that causes the rest of the world to say, what on earth is that about? How could they be so devoted to giving their lives to serving people that are so undeserving? Because it's part of the story of who God is in the world. And for decade after decade and century after century and for millennia after millennia until the day that Christ came and died for the sins of the world, the Jewish nation was supposed to be laying out a part of the story that would prophesy of the greatest moment of selflessness that the world would ever see. And Korah was saying, I'm not sure I really want to be a part of any of that. And God says, well, that's okay. I'll just bring you home a little early, man. There should be something in our heart that says, God, come on, that is serious business. It is serious business. You know where we're going with this, right? Because you have a story. Your story is not ever going to be in this story because this story's finished, but there's still another story that's being written, and we read about it in the book of Psalms. It talks about the books of heaven, right? God has written a story for you, and you have one reason for being on this earth. There's lots of other reasons that are ancillary, that are peripheral, that, that we have for being here. But all of us, ultimately, we have, we have the same reason for being here. We have the same reason for being here. And so that other people would be able to look at our lives, they, they would be able to look at our lives and find something that prepares them for a revelation of a selfless God. All of us have the same purpose for being here to be light and to be salt in a dying, desperate world. And that everybody who rises up and said, I'm his child, I'm a follower of Christ, that every person in the world would be able to look at us and find something about our lives that gets them ready for the start of their own story, for their own God life to be born. There should be something inside of you, come on, this weekend here at the City Life Church, that's saying, God, I am not selfless enough. And if you don't believe that, then ask the person that you're married to and they'll help you figure that out. There should be something inside of us that says, God, I want a bigger appetite for selflessness. I want a bigger appetite for selflessness because we cannot serve at an impossible level until there's been a divine impartation of selflessness into our lives. You can't do it on your own. You, you can't do it in your, you can't do it of your own strength. Humanity will fail every time. So God says to you and I, if you would only come again to the rock, there's more water that can flow from that rock into you. There was the water that washed away your sin and cleansed your humanity so that you could one day be in heaven. But part of that water, that living water, is an impartation of the very nature of God into who you are that causes the world when it sees you to say, who, what, what are you about? Come on, how could you love like that? How can you forgive like that? How can you serve like that? There is a story that God is writing in the world, and you and I are supposed to be a part of it. All right, come on. All right, which, I got too many books up here. 
All right. Verse 41. The next day, the entire Israelite community complained about Moses and Aaron. Really? 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 (laughs) Right? We say that, but it's what we do. You have killed the Lord's people. When the community assembled against them, Moses and Aaron turned toward the tent of meeting, and suddenly the cloud covering it and the Lord's glory appeared again. Trouble. Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord said to Moses, Get away from this community so that I might consume them instantly. And it, right? Come on, let's be honest with each other. If it had been you and I, we would have said, please, please, just take them out, right? Because I've had enough of them too, God. I can't imagine how angry you are because I know how angry I am. But you gave me these people anyways. They're not mine, right? We've had that conversation with God before. You put me in this job, right? You put me into this, right? I'm just, I'm where you called me to be. We've all had those complaining conversations with God. But that's not what they did. Because Moses and Aaron, they're selfless. They're selfless. What a picture of Christ. Moses tells Aaron, take your fire pan from the altar and add incense and go quickly to the community and make atonement for them because wrath has come from the Lord and the plague has begun. So Aaron took his fire pan as Moses had ordered and ran into the middle of the assembly. This is powerful stuff. Ran into the middle of the assembly and saw that the plague had begun among the people. And after he added incense, he made atonement for the people. He stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was halted. But those who died from the plague numbered 14,700. In addition, in addition to those who had died of the Korah incident, Aaron then returned to Moses and at the entrance of the tent of meeting since the plague had now been halted. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Come on, it's supposed to be the story of my life. It's supposed to be the story of your life. Unlovable people, the hard cases, the the, the people that we think are the most undeserving. God, God says to you and I, will you stand between the living and the dead? Are you willing to rush out into the crowd, into the community, and allow your life to be poured out for the sake of others? Because that's what Jesus did. It's who he is. It is the nature of God. There's a selflessness about him that we will never fully understand. There's a selflessness about him that we will never fully aspire to and attain. But come on, may it be in us this weekend that there's something inside of us that says, God, as selfless as I can become, even with the encumbrance of my humanity, let me at least get to what's possible for me. In fact, God, we would say we know that it's impossible, but because we're Pentecostal, we believe that you still make the impossible possible even when it comes to our humanity and that there would be a selflessness that would rise up inside of us that would cause us to say God I want to serve I want to how can I be involved what can I do what how can I reorder my life how can I we're not talking about wearing people out we're not talking about burning people out right too many churches do that 
We're talking about taking an honest look at how we spend our time, how we give of our finances, how we live our life, and saying, is this a reflection of a kingdom-minded value system? If it's not, come on, God, displace and replace because I want to serve in such a way that would cause the world to say, how is that even possible? Come on, stand, let's worship together. You made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. Your promises remain. You give justice to the weak. You care for the widow and orphan. Forever, Lord, you reign. What joy. Joy for those whose hope is in the name of the Lord. What peace, what peace for those whose confidence is Him alone. What joy, what joy for those whose hope is in the name of the Lord. 